Before I say anything else this morning, I want to start out with two quick disclaimers. One, I'm a missions minister with a Master's of Divinity. I'm not a licensed psychologist or an expert in mental health. So the language that I use and the stories that I'm going to tell today are my own and the best language that I have to voice them. And two, I'm going to be talking about depression this morning. Now, there's a wide spectrum in the severity of depression, with one potential outcome being suicide. And so if this triggers your own trauma or someone else's, or maybe you have young children who aren't ready yet for these topics, it might be better to watch this at another time. If you are contemplating suicide, I implore you to call the suicide hotline phone number or to reach out to your trained medical professional. Now, with the position of a missions minister comes a lot of different things. I get to preach like I'm doing this morning. I get to work with amazing nonprofits in town. I get to experience firsthand the spiritual formation of many different people. But one of my favorite perks is that sometimes I get to travel for work. In my personal opinion, there are two different extremes when it comes to international flyers. Now, on one hand, you've got the person who has the full-size suitcases, a backpack full of snacks, the neck pillow, the earplugs, the eye mask, the entire nine yards. On the other end of the spectrum is the person who seems to walk onto the plane with literally nothing but an extra pair of headphones and socks. Now, as I get older, I tend to lean closer to this second type. But on my first international trip, I definitely overdid it. In my overthinking and my overpacking, my first mistake was I decided that I needed some sleeping pills for the 16-hour flight to China. Because my family is notoriously cheap, my dad offered me to save a couple dollars and loan me some of his own prescription sleeping pills. Uh, don't get too ahead of me here in the story. On the flight over, I popped one of these pills. It should be said, though, that my dad was near 300 pounds at the time, and I was less than half of that. And I also did not know that my dad didn't take a full pill like I did. He only took half. Let's just say that I had the best 16-hour nap slash coma of my life. But as I came back and experienced jet lag for the first time, they also say that for every hour of time difference when you travel is the amount of days afterwards that you need to fully recover. So I would wake up at 3 a.m. and go to bed at 3 p.m. in the days after I returned. I simply felt like I was just in a daze all week. I did not have the energy to interact with friends. I misplaced my phone. I called people by the wrong first name. I forgot simple tasks. I was more irritable than normal. And I often found myself having these huge emotional extremes. I simply didn't feel like myself. And all week long in the back of my mind, I knew that this was just gonna get better in a matter of a few days. When I think back to this first international trip to China and my first experience of jet lag, I now think of all the people who don't have the luxury of knowing if or how or when they will ever get back to feeling like their normal self. Every year, at least 25% of the US population suffers from a diagnosable mental illness. It's about the same percentage of people diagnosed each year with cancer, those living with heart disease, those with HIV AIDS, and those with diabetes combined. Experts say that with our social isolation and raised level of anxiety due to COVID, that the next pandemic wave could be a pandemic wave of loneliness and depression and anxiety. 
Normally, about 20% of our college students report being lonely and anxious. Numbers this spring have hovered around 45 to 50%. The reality is for a massive number of society is that getting back to feeling normal isn't something that they can just choose. As I said, I'm no expert in this field, but I have come to understand a few things along the way in my research and in my own personal story. I've learned that mental illness can include things as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, PTSD, and depression. But it's also a broad term for a myriad of things that can affect our emotional well-being, our thinking, our behavior, our mood, our social interactions. Of those 25% who are diagnosed, we also have to think of their mothers and fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their children, spouse, friends, coworkers, of those who are affected alongside of them. You might be thinking this morning, why are we talking about mental health during the sermon portion? I believe that we, both our society and our church, desperately need to start talking about mental health. When COVID arose, we immediately all learned new language and we altered how we lived our lives to keep each other safe as we took in new information. If loneliness and anxiety is our next pandemic wave, then why not a better place for this conversation to happen and a better place to start taking care of each other mentally and emotionally be than right here in the church. I'll also add that when I grew up, we never talked about mental health, especially at church. As a kid, uh, I went to two different churches. At one, the pastor never mentioned until recently and privately that he struggled with anxiety for the last decade. At the other, the pastor openly and honestly talked about his battle with depression 35 years. He made it mentionable. He also gave permission to his congregation, and namely, he gave permission to my own father to mention his own struggle with depression, and it saved his life. Today's scripture text is one that we might not think of having anything to say about mental health, but I think it shows us a path forward as a church. In Mark 5, the sermon text that Sam read this morning we meet a man known as the Gerasene demoniac. And notice that he's not given a name in the text, and he's only described as a man who has a legion of demons within him. He has no clothes or no house. He lives in the tomb. He's in isolation from his community. The demon inside of him keeps him bound and enchained. And what strikes me most is that when Jesus asks this man his name, it's the demons that end up answering for him. He's trapped in a situation where he seems to have no control. He's ostracized from his community. And when he is asked his own name, he has no identity outside of the demons who speak for him. Now, there's a lot of ways we can read this text. We can read it in terms of demon possession and the power of God. We can read it in terms of scapegoating and how this community meets the ultimate scapegoat in Jesus. We can read it as the kingdom of heaven and the powers over the forces of Rome. But today, I want to use this story to talk about mental health and my own story and struggle with depression. I want to be careful not to make a one-on-one correlation here with this story and mental illness necessarily, or demon possession to depression. But it does speak powerfully to the millions of people who live every day with a similar condition found upon them. They too are trapped in situations of little to no control. 
they too are ostracized by their community and yes, even the church. They feel completely defined by their condition. They're tired of being that person or that family. So let's do this this morning. Let's talk about stigma and shame, identity and community. All of us in some way will experience a mental health challenge in our lifetime. Worry, stress, anxiety, compulsion, sleep deprivation, these can all be found on the mental health spectrum. And the first issue that we have to mention is stigma. In the church where I grew up, depression was talked about openly. It did not plant a new idea of depression in someone's head where it was not already there, but instead it removed the topic off the shelf of being too taboo to talk about. We vilify, we demonize, and we distance from things that we don't understand. And when stigma is left to grow, shame begins to take root deep within those who are suffering. When we're not able to name our demons, they can begin to name us. They trap us in and they cut us off from any hope of restoration. The first thing that a mental health crisis can bring when the context it arises place stigma on the conversation is a loss in that person's identity. All this man was known for was his condition. If something is taboo because we either don't know what to name it or we don't know what to say when it is named, then the identity of that human being can be lost as the stigma becomes too much to confront. Uh, Like many of us during the first few days of this pandemic, I jumped into some hobbies that I've always wanted to dabble in, but I never really had the time for. So I started finally listening to a presidential biography podcast. And one of the presidents that really struck, uh, struck me and stuck with me, and one that I felt was misunderstood, was Coolidge. And the reason why was because when President Calvin Coolidge's son died in office, he became known as Silent Cal. The name was given to him because of his mood, his emotions, and his ability to talk with others diminished after the death of his son. You know what I think that he was dealing with? I think he was carrying the immense and huge grief of losing his son in office and the depression from not being able to openly talk about it. If we can't openly name our trauma, our trauma turns around and renames us like the man in the story. Just last week, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott publicly talked about his struggle with depression after the death of his brother. One popular sports talk show host said that he shouldn't have talked about it at all because he's simply just revealing his own weakness as a quarterback. Uh, In my own ministerial presence and uh, knowledge, I want to say that this is an absolute load of garbage. Brene Brown says this. She says that shame can exist when we place words around it. If we're brave enough to name the demons holding us, somehow they lose the power that they once had. Revealing the state of your own mental health is not weakness. It's a sign of courage. This is what Jesus' actions so powerfully show in this story. He refuses to let the demons speak for, act for, and name this man. Jesus notices them. Jesus calls them out, and the demons lose power over him. They literally drown themselves out in the story. We've got to find the courage to name our demons. That might not mean that they will ever leave us, but naming our challenges 
can begin to break us out of the shame that keeps us locked in this cycle and this pattern. But stigma and shame don't just exist on an individual level. When stigma is allowed to flourish on the communal level, then shame causes us to often cast people out of our own communities. When we don't understand something, we demonize and we exile. In this text, the community may be the character that we as the church need to pay to the most. In fact, the community actually asked Jesus to leave them because they're so afraid and they don't know what to do next. There's a famous mission story of Vincent Donovan, who was a missionary in the 70s in Africa to the Maasai tribe. And he's meeting with the elders and he sees a man on the outskirts of the village. And he comes back the next day and he sees him again, sitting there by himself, not interacting with anyone. And so Donovan asks the man, why he's on the edge of the village. And he says, I did something terrible many years ago. I betrayed my people and we don't have a a way to mention what I did or to deal with it. So I'm simply cut off. The Messiah needed to place blame onto something and to someone. And there was not a way to openly talk about what he did and they couldn't deal with it. Too often in our own culture, it's those who struggle with a mental illness who get cast out of our village. Now, community has become a buzzword even in our churches. The produce that I buy at Publix has its own Facebook community. The podcasts that I like to listen to say that I'm in their listening community. Uh, The app that I type this up on wants me to join its online community. But true community still is the best tool, in my opinion, for combating social isolation. Now, let me be clear. For those of us who are experiencing a mental health crisis, seeing a psychologist or a therapist are not only beneficial, but necessary. For me, daily medication has been just what I needed. I take a small white pill every single morning and there's nothing unbiblical about that. But these things, without a community of support around you, who is not willing to exile you when you're at your rock bottom, can become the solid foundation for moving into a healthier direction. I'm drawn back again and again to this scripture passage, namely because it became real in my own life. Now, my family history is riddled with mental illnesses from my great-grandparents on down the line. Anxiety and depression seem to almost be genetic for us. But it became personal for me last Christmas. My father has battled depression for most of the time that I can remember growing up. Depression never robbed him of being a good parent, and he was always there for both me and my family. Last Christmas, I was visiting my family back in Missouri, and my dad was at one of his lowest points mentally and decided to move all the guns out of the house because he did not want to have the option of suicide. This event, the shattering in my mind of the image of the perfect family that we had, this happiness, this healthiness, the weight of the fragility of my dad and my family's livelihoods, the notion that in the next day I had to drive eight hours back home, I ended up going into my own personal tailspin. When I came home to Huntsville, I couldn't sleep. I was irritable. I couldn't focus. I had massive mood swings. and I had no ability to choose my way out of it. My condition was not public or pronounced like this man in today's scripture text, 
but it was enough to know that I simply was not okay. After a few weeks of dealing with this, unable to focus and push myself to keep going, I ended up backing my car into our garage door. And when I came inside, I fell on the floor crying as Allie held me. I had hit a low point where I knew that I needed more help from trained professionals. I ended up being diagnosed with depression and thanks to my amazing doctor, I was finally able to open up about the things that I had been struggling with. Like Travis mentioned, he touched last week on the notion that some of us are able to choose our responses and I fully believe this. But for some of us struggling with a mental health crisis or an illness, this choice is not so readily available. The biggest lie that I could tell you this morning was that because I had a good community around me, I was simply able to choose to be happier and that everything today is totally back to normal. But the reality is, it's just I did not choose for this to come to me. I can't choose for this to simply go away. It's now been about 10 months since that event. I still take medication every day and I still talk to medical professionals. Some days are really great, but some days I feel like silent cow. Maybe it's not on the person who is struggling that has the responsibility to choose a different circumstance. Maybe it's not the man possessed by a demon in today's scripture, his responsibility to have the demon removed. But maybe instead the choice lies with us, the community, the church, to take care of one another. This year I've deeply learned that it's through great suffering and great love that we are transformed the most. For many watching this morning, you're not experiencing a mental illness at the moment. So what can you practically do? Here are four things. One, treat every human being as if they are carrying a secret heavy burden. Two, our job is not to weigh the burden of another and deem it worthy or not, but instead to begin to remove the weight off of their shoulder. Three, community can only occur when you realize how deeply and how desperately we need each other. And four, we have to remove the taboo label and the stigma off of talking about mental health. Honesty and vulnerability must become the norm in this first step. For most of us, a mental health diagnosis is a moment of great suffering. But what I have been transformed by the most is also not just this great suffering, but the great love of my father and a new understanding of his suffering that I did not have previously. I understand more of the great love of my wife and the intimacy and continued care that she has given me. I know even more of the great love of this community, the great love of this church, and especially of my fellow ministers who give me the permission to take care of my mental health and to publicly talk about it with you this morning. And above all, I've learned deeply of the great love of our Savior who continually chooses to love us because his love is patient, his love is kind, it bears all things, and it endures all things.